Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of September 13th, 2021. I'm Jim Henson, Director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Joined again today by Josh Blank, Research Director for the same Texas Politics Project. Good afternoon, Josh. Thank you. Good afternoon to you. Yes, and not raining here, so um, best wishes to all our friends in Southeast Texas where it's raining a lot and many people are without power, but I would say that after some promised rain, I went out and watered the yard today because the rain is now out of the forecast in Austin. Is it is it the path of that storm? Is it lame to be disappointed? I mean, for me, just yes. personally, like I was, <laughs> I was going to water and then I didn't, and and now I did. Well, I I think there's a lot of that going on here, but um, it's not important. Not important. And again, say sorry, you know, sorry to our friends in in other parts of the state that are probably undergoing a lot of hardship. One of the major issues looming in Texas right now is the delayed redistricting process. Uh, which is the main item on the agenda of the third special session that is about to meet in Austin next week. So we thought we'd do a bit of a preview of the issue, given the start of the special session and the likely availability of maps, either formally or informally, you know, in in the next few days, certainly, uh, or by early next week. Now, a little background. I mean, this was supposed to take place during the regular session per constitutional requirement uh, at the federal level with rules governed by the Texas Constitution and statute. Uh, But the process was delayed as as a result of the holdup in the census due to the pandemic. But the, you know, conducting of the census and the gathering of the data, then the processing of the data, the pandemic response has just rippled, have rippled through the whole process uh, nationally. and, And we're now on the, on the receiving end of that, but we're finally there. Now, you know, the issue's been lurking in the background, you know, one could say for years. I mean, almost <laughs> since, you know, the as the as the old maps expire, people, you know, very quickly begin to think about the new maps. Um, but it's been hovering in the background for the session. I mean, I think there's a sense in which people, it, legislators and staff and people in the capital world expected to have to do this in the regular session. That gets bumped. And then the sense that, throughout the the late part of the regular session and the two special sessions we've had so far, there was hovering over all that was this idea that we're coming back in the fall to do redistricting and that's going to be a thing. And you could, you could even argue that it was hovering over the whole fall, not even in the sense of we were going to do it, but in the sense of, you know, it's a very political process that changes the outlines of the maps, obviously. And so, you know, once I, we've talked about this previously, but, you know, to the extent that the Republican-led legislature focused on really issues that were important to Republican primary voters after a pretty competitive 2018 election and a less competitive but still competitive 2020. Part of at least, you know, the what goes into that was the expectation that with redistricting, Republicans could re-solidify their majorities. Right. I mean, I, yeah, I, th- I think it, co- it, it colored, I think, uh, uh, Republican confidence, even as it led to 
you know, a, a lot of everybody looking over their shoulder or maybe giving people some side eye, in, including within the Republican caucus as mm-hmm. the, the very contentious politics of the last, you know, basically of, of all year yeah, so far. Yeah, the last uh, year. <laughs> unfolded. So let's let's start then a little bit with what the what the basics are, what the map makers are working with and and what this much anticipated data told us. So first of all, of course, not surprisingly, Texas got bigger, right? Yeah. I mean, but it's not just that Texas got bigger. So first of all, just numbers, you know, we went from about 25 million to about 29 million people. That's an increase of about 4 million or 15.9%. And that's a lot. So, I mean, we're, you know, the second biggest state to California. And that's, Cal- and that's in 10 years. That's, that's the, over the, yeah, that's over the 2010 10 to 2020. And that's over the 10 year period. And if you look at, you know, uh, you know, the other big states, you know, California grew, Six percent, New York grew four percent. You know, and so at sixteen percent, we're actually not only one of the fastest growing states, but we're an extremely fast growing large state. So that's right. one of the you know one of the pieces of this. That's why Texas gained two congressional seats out of the process. But what a lot of people have also focused on is is the is the underlying composition of that change. You know, we know that Texas is a majority minority state. You know, we've been talking for years about, you know, a declining, you know, share of the white population. But these numbers really crystallize the extent of that in the last decade. So when we look at that 4 million uh, person increase in Texas, a little under 5% of that entire change, about 187,000 people, is attributed to non Hispanic whites, which means 95% of the increase in population in Texas can be attributed to. Uh, African-Americans, Hispanics, Asians, other races and ethnicities, and people who identify as multiple races and ethnicities. And so if you think about the, if you look at the difference here, the percent changes in the groups, the white population only increased by 1.6% compared to 19.3% for the black population, 20.9% for the Hispanic population, and 64.6% for the Asian population, which has been consistently one of the fastest growing groups in the state over the entire decade. So this is sort of the, the top line takeaway about sort of the demographic shifts in Texas and how, you know, we again, we've been talking about this for years. Everybody's been talking about, but, but I mean, it's almost, I mean, it's almost a hundred percent of the change is, is non-white. I mean, it's so right. close. It's, it's and, really overwhelming. And in terms of all the political discussion or a lot of the political discussion we've heard again over the last, you know, decade, if not decade and a half, about half 49.5%, call it half of that was Hispanic, mm-hmm. right? That's right. So that leaves us just to get the top lines in place with, you know, non-Hispanic whites being per the census, 39.7% Hispanics being 39.3%, which is, you know, those lines will close cross to even pretty soon. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, the black population at 11.8 and then the Asian population at 5.4. And if you're if you're doing column, if you're if you're adding this up and you're going to say, oh, wait, that's not 100, but 3.8 is other groups, just for those of you uh, checking the math at home. Well, that's anyway. <laughs> now, the other, yeah, I mean, that's presumptuous, perhaps. Um, <laughs> then, then the other big shift was in the urban, rural, suburban population, which we're going to talk about a, a bit in, 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 a, in a moment because it's so central to everything. But what did that look like? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I mean, you know, the main point is, is that a lot of counties in Texas lost population. Texas has a huge number of counties because it's a huge state. And, you know, a large share of those counties lost population overall. Uh, I think we have 143 counties lost populations, about 56 
percent, but it also ties to the distribution of race and ethnicity in the state, which you can't help but but notice here. So the the rural parts of the state, not all, not uniformly, obviously in the Rio Grande Valley and along the border, this isn't true, but a lot of the rural counties in the state have larger white populations than the state as a whole. And so when you're talking about these kinds of declines, you can look at it by race and you find that 198 counties in Texas lost non-Hispanic white populations. So 78% of all counties. And when you're talking about that, you're mostly talking about rural counties. You're talking about counties up in and around the panhandle and kind of down and then into the east, kind of heading towards Dallas, but not not getting too close to Fort Worth and Tarrant and all that, because obviously the outer counties are also where the fastest growth is. By outer, I mean suburban counties, which we'll come back to. Uh, so 78% of counties lost white population compared to 62% of counties that lost black population. Only 25% of counties lost any Hispanic population. Uh, and so this is kind of, you know, again, this is going to replay itself out. This has to do with the demographics of the state overall and the nature of where people are living. But the sum total of this is, you know, population gains in the in and around the urban centers and, and including, you know, the counties that are adjacent to the big urban counties that population being driven by, in most cases, there's a few exceptions, but in most cases by, you know, non-white populations. Uh, and then, you know, a decline in population in much of the other rest of the state. Yeah, and I think this is where we, we do two things. One, note that as a uh, as an as a non-visual medium, this is where podcasts kind of fall down on you because <laughs> where you can really, I mean, this becomes just so incredibly immediately apparent mm-hmm. if you look at a map that looks at the numeric change and, and color codes, you know, losses versus gains on a scale. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you just look at this and, you, and it's just immediately apparent where the wide swaths of urban te- of rural Texas are are in continue to decline now this is not news per se the other point i would make here is is a is a hat tip to our friends and colleagues at the texas demographic center led by state demographer lloyd potter Mm -hmm. their website is terrific for all this now not to i don't want to sell the the u.s census short the u.s census also is a probably unequaled sense of data in some sorts of ways about these things in terms of you know the depth and and the extent that we can just go and 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 drill into this data but the the folks at the texas demographic center do a great job providing not only the data and and some background data and lots of tools for manipulating the data but they're very generous with their presentations following up i think on their predis on the on the the pattern begun by the last demographer state demographer lloyd potter i'm sorry uh, steve murdoch but lloyd potter's been doing a great job out there giving tons of presentations and their slide decks are all on the website and and very easy to find they're not there kind of hidden it says right on the front page hey here's all our presentations and you know use them to your heart's content so a real you know real hats off to them for their approach to we like we like people who share data yeah, I mean, and and everybody should. So you know, some of the practical implications. Then, if you think about about redistricting here, and and we want to get to the suburban piece, but you know, to get to a mechanical piece, remember that you know the reason this matters is because it fuels the redrawing of districts so they can be, in a sense, re-equalized, since it's a requirement mm-hmm. that the districts have equal population within a. Right. Uh, a range that is defined depending on on what level we're talking about. And just in terms of thinking about elections and thinking about turnout, I, I do think it's interesting to note just what the size of these districts is. So, you know, uh, 
under the new, you know, uh, given the new data, the new Texas Senate district size for the 31 seats in the in the Senate will be 940,178 uh, Texans, or re- actually what we should say is residents, right? People that live there. Right. People that live there. For a House district, it'll be 194,303. For a U, for, that's a Texas House. For a congressional seat, for a U, U.S. House district, there'll now be 38 seats. So that'll be about 766,987,000. Again, with the plus or minus margins allowed, the map drawers, of course, hitting these exactly would be nearly impossible. So, but, you know, those are, you know, all pretty big districts. So one thing I think to note at the, at the top level is that as Texas gets bigger and those numbers of seats stay the same, representation gets more diffuse. Yeah, I mean, there's no, there's nowhere to go. I mean, we're not, we can't add seats. I mean, we could add seats, but we're not going to add seats anytime soon. So, whereas yeah, the particularly you know, in the con- Texas system, right? Right. So, so, whereas the congressional system equalizes itself through the reapportionment of congressional seats to to at least maintain some kind of, you know, it, it, let's say this, it reduces the impact of the population gains by spreading the population out across more seats. Right. We don't do that in the, the Texas Senate. We don't do that in the Texas House. So you end up with, you know, Texas Senate seats that are. Um, you know, significantly larger than congressional seats. Yeah. I mean, the increase from 2010 was, you know, almost 130,000 people. Right. So basically, you know, not, not quite there, but almost the size of what a house seat was in 2010. Right. Right. So that's that's how, that's a lot. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. So, you know, keeping that in mind, um, you know, I mean, I think, you know, a number of political questions arise here. I mean, I think, you know, one of the ones that, you know, that comes up frequently, it's come up in conversations I've had with a lot of people on, you know, I was a panelist on a, at a professional meeting and, uh, late last week, which redistricting was discussed quite a bit, you know, and I think one of the central questions that, you know, you kind of set up when talking about, you know, Republican confidence in the, in the session and in shaping the agenda for the primary, you know, that is geared towards Republican primaries is, you know, how ambitious can GOP map, can Republican map makers be? How ambitious will they be? You know, and there's a, there's a subtle relationship, I mean, think between the can and will question. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a fact that in 2010, the Republican map makers were very ambitious. I mean, right. they drew more than, I can't remember what the exact number was, but you know, you know, well upwards of 90 Republican districts in the, in the, in the Texas house, mm-hmm. you know, some of which decayed over time, as we've discussed on, on the podcast. And, you know, the premise of that, or kind of the, the way that that works is worth thinking about going into the next session. So at that point, you know, Republicans were very ambitious. They drew a lot of Republican districts, some of which were you know, somewhat close now, they had a lot of Republican voters to work with, mm-hmm. and they, you know, made the most of their projections of differential voter turnout, you know, on top of the demographics. But nonetheless, we started seeing, you know, more competition in those areas in some ways fairly early. Some of those House districts were becoming noticeably more competitive in 2016. Obviously, we saw several flip in 2018. And, you know, as we'll get to, they were in these suburban areas and suburban and exurban areas that grew very rapidly and and in which the population shifted. Nonetheless, it's hard not to have the feeling that those Republican lawmakers 
knew that there would be change, knew that there would be growth. Now nobody can know exactly how fast or what that's going to look like, but they were bold in drawing those districts. And so now the question is, given all of these fundamentals we just talked about, how ambitious will they be this time? Will they play it a little bit safer in order to build a more stable, if smaller majority, or will they take the same approach, just extend their majority just as much as they can and and then work to defend the seats over the next 10 years, both, both in elections and in court? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have much to add to, to that. I think you've laid out most of it. I mean, I think you know, where you started was a good starting point, which is the the will versus the can, right? I mean, yeah. in terms of ambition, right? I mean, I think I think they will be as ambitious as they possibly can be. The question is, as you kind of say, you know, how do they how do they think about what ambition looks like now? I mean, you know, again, there's there's a good article in the Texas Tribune a little while back, uh, sort of somewhere kind of you know the later part of the decade, talking about how the, the focus on the last round of redistricting among Republicans was to get the, to the biggest majority they could possibly find. And one thing, you know, just I like like to think about about redistricting, just say out loud every once in a while, because why not, is, is the fact that there is no there's no solution to this problem. And what I mean by that is that you could draw the map in an infinite number of ways and satisfy the requirements that are necessary under the Constitution, the Voting Rights Act, et cetera, et cetera, that they have to be contiguous, all the, all the things that are sort of required of redistricting. Um, and so contiguity and respecting county lines, right. Those kinds of things, uh, compactness, you know, for the most part, although that's pretty loose. Um, (laughs) and the decision here, you know, obviously, you know, the the ambition that Republicans sought in 2010 was, and and beyond was to get the most seats they possibly could out of the process. And I mean, you know, you kind of wonder, you know, looking at where we are now, I mean, just thinking again about the politics of this, whether that's really, you know, what I would be doing if I were, you know, sitting there in the room is, you know, if I were, if I had my Republican hat on, and I'm sitting in the room trying to make the maps. I mean, I think one of the things that you could see is you could see the Republicans looking for a much more stable majority, as opposed to the extent of the majority. I mean, if you think about, I mean, not that there's not still infighting the Republican party and you want to be able to have some extra space in your margins when you're in the house and you're having a vote. But the flip side of that is in a state that, you know, is increasingly described as competitive, you also don't want to be creating a bunch of seats that you then go and lose two years down the road, four years down the road, six years down the road, and create a narrative that you're losing your grip on the state, as opposed to basically maintaining a solid majority. And again, I'm just working, just sort of thinking about the argument you might have out loud about what kind of ambition you would seek. But then the other piece on the can side of, you know, how, you know, how ambitious can they be is, you know, the, th- the things we're talking about at the beginning about, you know, the nature of the growth, both the demographics of the growth, but also the concentration of the growth, it's so concentrated in and around urban areas, and it's so driven by non-white and younger populations that, you know, it's not clear to me that, you know, the Republicans can just kind of make some some minor tweaks, you know, to... To, to districts and kind of get right, kind of arrive at the same place. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I mean, one example of that is you know that that came up in in conversation with this at the meeting I was at the other day, and I don't think I'm betraying any confidence this year is to look at Senate District Two, Baba Hall's district. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, this is a district in north, you know, kind of north northeast Texas, um, stretches from the Oklahoma border down to the eastern Dallas suburbs and exurbs. But if you look at these maps that we were talking about earlier and where the population uh, has, has either not grown very fast or where there's been a decline, 
you know, that district is going to need some folks mm-hmm. or they're going to have to, and if even not, even if that district, the dis- the rural districts adjacent to it will. And in a case like that, and this just gets down to the kind of dilemmas that people are having to deal with, the, the problems that people have to solve, mm-hmm. you've got a hard stop at the Oklahoma border. Yep. Right. <laughs> you know, if you're bordering up there, you, I mean, it would be convenient if you could swing up and probably get some far that, southern Oklahomans. In is, that, t- is that annexation? <laughs> in your district. Yes. I mean, uh, could dispute the border perhaps between now and then, or that border. But the kind of way that that works out causes all kinds of trouble. So if you bleed farther south in that district and you get a little closer to Dallas, you know, I mean, you think about this a lot in terms of, well, a safe Republican seat and protecting it from a Democrat, your problem might be, I mean, look, there's a possibility of creating a problem if you try to slide into a more urban part of Dallas and and you pick up some Democratic voters. But the bigger problem there, or, or a competing problem that is probably bigger in terms of the practicality of what kind of adjustments might get made, is that you pick up some more urban Republicans, Right. And then, you know, while we act like they don't exist, there are plenty. And if you can incorporate them, then all of a sudden the politics of this internally, as you're saying, ah, ta-da, here's the map. And Senator Hall walks in and kind of goes, I I have a question. Right. (laughs) You know, and it's not about Democrats. It's about Republicans. And that and that problem is going to be really present in West Texas and the and the panhandle where. You know, you have only maybe two or three counties at most, as I look at the map, that can claim some population gain. And one of them is, you know, urban Lubbock, mm-hmm. which we don't think of as an urban center, but is the but, urban, yeah. you know, is urban for that part of the, certainly is the urban center for that part of the of the state. And there are going to be a lot of hard, hard calls in those areas that are going to involve exclusively Republicans. Well, I think, you know, I mean, just to put a fine point on, I mean, you, you raise here what is kind of the challenge in this, which is that, you know, when you're looking at, I mean, you look at them, I mean, you raise, you know, Senator Hall's district. I mean, I think about kind of like the Congressman McCall's district that goes, you know, from sort of the east, you know, sort of the east side of Austin all the way to the west side of Houston. Yeah. And the issue is that, you know, a lot of the counties in there are that are sort of in the middle that are the Republican strongholds that make the base of these districts. I think, you know, Roger Williams is another good example, kind of going from yeah. North Austin all the way up to South Tarrant County, basically. You know, the, the base of the Republican support in those kinds of districts are in the rural parts of the state or the rural, the rural parts of those districts. Mm-hmm. Those, those, you know, those areas almost, you know, almost entirely are losing population and so what do you have to do to equalize that? Well, you have to reach either further into the suburbs, further into an urban area. And ultimately you're bringing in, at the very least, you know, what, setting aside the exact balance, you're bringing in less Republican voters into the district right. if you're doing that. And that's just how, and that's just if we just say, you know, just in terms of the balance of, of Democrats and Republicans in urban environments and suburban environments as opposed to rural environments. And so the idea of, you know, making these districts that, that rely on a base of rural Republican support and then can kind of pick off right. pieces of the city and in the, in the surrounding areas, that just becomes, it just becomes more challenging. Just Well, and that brings us to the last thing we should talk about for the last few minutes. And that is when you're talking about, in, in both of the cases we've talked about, the Senate District 2, the McCall District, the number of which is it 25? I can't see. remember what district it is. 
you know, those, those Austin districts that are all carved up, I get the numbers, you know, confused. <laughs> I think it's 25, but right. you know, we're talking about urban and rural areas, but where the kind of money shot is for the map makers, if you're a Republican is figuring out where those concentrations of suburban exurban voters are Republican enough to do you the kind of good you want to be able to do. And that's very unpredictable. And we know that not just not from the data or not from the redistricting data, but from what we've seen in both the map, you know, knowing where they're the most competitive elections, particularly at the state house level, because those are the most finely grained districts, Mm -hmm. you know, but also from what we see in, in our polling in which, you know, you ask on a, on a whole range of questions. I, I, I want to say all of them, but it's not all of them. But certainly on, on most of the policy stuff and political questions that we ask, you know, when you look at what we call our, our location variable, that is people's self-declaration of urban, rural, or suburban, you know, you can see the polarization between urban and rural districts, you know, very clearly in terms, you know, in terms of like lopsided distributions of public opinion on issues. Mm-hmm. But those suburban areas move a lot. I mean, yeah. and they move a lot within a range which is, you know, clearly much more divided than are the urban and rural results, or well, much more and, evenly divided. And just just because I feel like every time we do this, I need to throw out a social science term at least once, and it's all endogenous to itself. So it's all everything's affecting itself. So if we look at back on the previous election cycles and sort of the focus, you know, the, the I would say the the you know tacit if not explicit focus on suburban voters of late these are also the areas of the state where we've been seeing the most growth and this is not just true because we just have the census come out every check in that that the census bureau does has shown that texas has some of the fast, fastest going counties in america and those counties aren't necessarily harris county or travis county it's williamson county and hayes county and rockwall it's you know fort bend it's the counties outside of these urban areas, which we think, which we can think of as the, you know, as the cities get bigger and the suburbs, you know, the definition of what is a suburb kind of shift. This is what we're talking about. But when we're talking about this in Texas, we're talking about a young and diverse population moving towards those areas. Cause that's, again, that's where the growth is. And just to kind of, I want to make this point explicitly, you know, just to tie something together here about the size of Texas's population gain and the type of gain we're talking about. This isn't trivial or relative. It's not as though, you know, yeah, there's a lot of gain here relative to some lot to relative, you know, there's a lot of gain in the urban areas relative to the to the rural areas. No, no, no. There's a lot of gain here, period. For any state in the country, for any right. city or any urban area, these are the fastest growing places in the entire country. And so, you know, the to the to the extent that politics has been focusing increasingly on issues that, you know, in the state that might, you know, uh, excite or, you know, in some cases really upset you know, voters in the suburbs, that's, this is, this is why there's so much attention to that because ultimately this is becoming the battleground and there's no way to avoid it. And those suburban voters are heterogeneous and it's hard to, you know, you can't really just say, oh yeah, let's just go grab these conservative suburbs and this will help us out. You know, I mean, and there's, again, tons of examples in our polling and, and we'll post some of these with the podcast on our website. But, um, you know, I mean, one example, the concern about community, but the one of the polarizing issues in the state right now, if not in, obviously in the country, when we asked about, you know, Texans concern about the coronavirus spreading in their community in August of 2021. Well, you know, among suburban, you know, self-declared suburbanites, 44% were extremely or very concerned and, uh, 
43% or were either somewhat or not very concerned with another 13, not at all concerned. So you see this kind of, you know, this, you know, these kind of splits. And if you go down that, I mean, it's just, it recurs again and again. If you go, you know, think about a Republican issue that, you know, or at least an issue that we expect Republicans to make something of in the Mm -hmm. fall, you know, and that has been a huge issue in the last two or three years, never very far from the surface. On the question we ask about, do you think the deaths of black people during encounters with police in recent years are a sign of broader problems or a sign of isolated incidents? 45% say broader problems, 47% say isolated incidents. Now, you unpack that and that just points to a lot of a lot of aspects of suburban demographics and suburban politics that are weighing heavily here. Yeah, and I think, you know, and I think it's an, you know, I don't want to say it's the only aspect. It's another aspect that that clearly contributes probably to the nastiness of the politics in the current moment is that, you know, you have, I would say, I mean, in some ways you could say partisans of both sides, except for the fact that Democrats have no control over the process. So I would so just Republicans. I think Democrats would be doing the same things if they could, looking for issues that are you know that where they can get support from 60 maybe 65% of suburban voters cuz that's pretty good because if you do that you know you probably if you're a republican let's say it's a republican issue that has support of about 65% of suburban voters you know you probably have the support of 75 to 80% of rural voters you probably have about a similar share of urban voters, maybe a little bit less, but 70 to 80% in opposition, but you're okay. You'll take that trade if you're a Republican voter and you know, or you're a Republican elected official and you're setting the agenda, you know that you're going to have near unanimity in the rural parts of the state. You're going to split the suburbs in a way you're comfortable with, and then you're okay losing the urban vote that you weren't going to get in the first place. But it requires looking for issues that, you know, I think reinforce a lot of this polarization and really, right. you know, and it also requires looking for issues that are divisive because they're, you know, we're trying, they're trying to wedge out just, you know, something over 50% in the rural part, or I'm sorry, in the suburban parts of the state. Yeah. And, and I think something that, you know, you kind of raised the Democrats in that, in making that point and, you know, sort of the competing agendas in the, in the electoral political world. But the other piece to remember, you know, there's a there's a lot of internal procedural factors and and internal political factors that color how people navigate, you know, the kind of uh, you know the demographic and terrain that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, a former you know staffer on the redistricting committee at one of the events I did recently, you know, recounted how in the year that. They were involved in redistricting the way that the Republican speaker and the Republican chair of redistricting handled it was to go to, you know, handle the fact that in the big urban counties, it was virtually, you know, virtually or entirely Democrats. They would go to the, to that county's delegation and say, Hey, why don't you guys recommend us some maps? Mm-hmm. Why don't you recommend us how you would, how you would do your, and they leave that element of the fighting to their you know, to that. And then, you know, whether they accept it or don't accept it, I mean, it still goes up the chain. <laughs> and so, you know, there's a lot of interesting elements that have, you know, in some ways, nothing to do with what we're talking about. I love, about. I know, I, I love that. Just as it's sort and, of like, here, let me, let me do a favor for you. Yeah. You guys, yeah. You guys should have some say in this. Here, you guys, why, why don't you guys all get your knives out with each right. other and then come and, back and to my, us. You know, in my impression from talking to people over the years is that that is, that does happen that, I mean, it, mm-hmm. you know, those things where, you know, where there's a, a severe party split, 
you know, you, it gets left to, you know, to regional and, and, and county level to the delegations and then to how the, you know, whoever is influencing those delegations and having a say in that. And, and that, you know, that can have a lot of interesting repercussions. I mean, it's, you know, sort of the, a part of the lore that that's how Barbara Jordan's congressional seat got drawn was, you know, out of that negotiation process that came out of, of redistricting in the, in the early seventies. So in thinking about that, as we draw to a close, I mean, I, I think, you know, we should end on the bald politics of this in terms of the process that, you know, no maps are going to get drawn in either chamber that displeases in any way the lieutenant governor or the speaker of the house. And, they have different kinds of interests at play. I mean, as with everything, you know, the speaker has a different level of, of board play here due to the fact that the coalitional politics that, that form the, that shape the foundation of any speaker's power within the chamber also shape redistricting. And that also brings in, you know, interesting politics across party lines. And so I think, you know, we're, you know, there were lots of, you know, suggestions. I we may or may not have talked about it on the podcast that, you know, this was influencing and and, and put influencing some of the Democrats and putting pressure on them as the quorum break limped to an end. You know, I, I don't. I mean, we'll go into much longer because we're finishing here. But I mean, you raised something I think is so, which is so interesting about redistricting, which I should say people aren't paying attention to. Just real quick in our polling, for the most part, it's not something that's a it's a high right. salience issue for most people. But what sort of makes it so interesting to the sort of people like us and probably the people who listen to this is the fact that, you know, there's a basis in a version of fact. And I should just say there's probably a severe undercount in our census data. That's almost certainly to be the case for lots of reasons. But it's the data that we have to use. So on the one hand, you start with this basis of fact, right? Here's where the people are. Here's what they look like. And then, you know, on the one hand, we know that there's all kinds of sophisticated tools and analyses available to people to try to cut the maps up to create either the most advantage they can, whether for one election cycle or many, and, you know, balancing these issues we've been talking about. But then there's also just the raw mono and mono politics, and, you know, which can, which can manifest self, in a bunch know, of different ways. Yes. Yes. The beautiful and frightening and, and the beautiful and terrible play of self-interest. <laughs> well, so be it. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? Okay. I think on that note, we will call it a podcast. I want to thank Josh for being here. Thank our crew in the liberal arts development studio at UT Austin for as ever their excellent production help. You can find some of the, you know, some of the data we're discussing, of course, as we said, on the website of the Texas Demographic Center, public opinion data on our website at texaspolitics.utexas.edu. As I did last week, I'll put up Uh, blog posting up at our website in the blog under our polling section at the same website with some of the graphics that we've talked about here since we've emphasized so many visuals. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week with another podcast. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. 